And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, yeah, as Lee and Peter said, welcome. If it's your first Sunday, glad to have you. Uh, if not, welcome back. Um, we are in a series right now in the Gospel of John, uh, which um, I think Spence posted somewhere this week, or I, or I was talking to him maybe, but this is our 63rd sermon, I think, or fourth in, in John. So we've, we've um, covered a lot of ground, and I have a couple of months left here uh, to, uh, to wrap up. But we are in uh, the climax, not just of the book here, the Gospel of John, um, but the whole Bible. The, the whole Bible culminates with uh, the person, but especially the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his triumphant resurrection. Everything leads to that. And uh, so we're starting uh, what's going to amount to be uh, six weeks on the crucifixion starting today. Uh, depends kind of when you start counting. It doesn't really matter, but I always in my mind start with his flogging. When he's on trial, he's, uh, he's flogged by Pilate and kind of brought back before the people. And we'll, we'll read that today in John 19.1. Um, but six weeks, we'll kind of do a deep dive. We'll take our time. We'll look at what uh, Old Testament scriptures are being referenced, some earlier parts of Jesus' teachings are being referenced, but really, like, what does this mean? What is God trying to say to us? Uh, he has a lot to say uh, to us about himself and about us and about what redemption truly, uh, truly is. And so, if I was to, like, start this whole thing with a couple of uh, asides, uh, one would be just that, just to say that there's a lot of Old Testament and kind of early Jesus teaching references or kind of callbacks uh, in this section. Some are very obvious, most are not, most are illusions. And so I want to walk us through those, not all of them, uh, but hopefully a lot of them, uh, some slowly and some kind of quickly in passing. But if that's a new concept to you, um, remember or understand that the Bible says about itself that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He is the finish line. He is the one that it was looking ahead to all along, whether explicitly or implicitly. And so um, when I teach on this, actually, in my fall uh, biblical theology class, I talk about it like it's the North Pole, uh, the crucifixion a bit, where, you know, when you're on the North Pole, you've all been there, right? Uh, the, the, every direction south, right? There's no east or west or north, every direction south. It's, so it's kind of like the idea is, or top of the pyramid, if you want to think about it that way, the idea is that we'll talk about the pole uh, when we talk about the crucifixion, but you, you have to talk about all things uh, being in relation to that pole as well. Because wherever you look, you're seeing things that kind of support or point uh, to, to that pole. And so I think that's kind of what you have to end up doing when you read this. You, again, you talk about the top, the, the, the pinnacle, but how all things help give pictures and give words and ideas to what's really happening here, sometimes behind the curtains. And uh, so we'll be doing a lot of that um, this, uh, these next uh, several weeks. The second thing would be, uh, this is a very rated R for violence uh, segment of Scripture. It's not visual, of course, so the sermons will stay PG-13. But uh, if you're watching this, um, it's very rated R for gore and violence. Um, but simultaneously, it is nothing less than a love letter from God to you and me. Uh, always remember that uh, when we read today and listen today and for the rest of your life. Uh, if you take away one side of that equation, uh, it just becomes obscene history. Or we end up watering down the love of God, which changes the gospel, or some kind of dangerous thing like that. Um, we, we cannot sanitize the cross. Uh, it's, we, we need to keep it rated R uh, for, for a reason, as the Bible dictates. But also, remember that God is saying, I love you. And, and he's writing a letter with his own blood to us, saying, this is how much I, I love you. 
So I'll, I'll remind us of that as we go, but I, I wanted to start these six weeks with that um, so that we hopefully get the most out of this and the right kinds of things out of this uh, theologically. So um, I actually always pray this before every Sunday, so, but I'll just say it to you. I always pray this for you and me, but I'll just say it to you now. Uh, there's like a full range of emotions then that are all appropriate, you know, whether we weep or laugh, whether we feel heavy or light, uh, whether we feel convicted or encouraged, like, uh, and, and many more things that, that you might feel multiple emotions with this, or none at all, and that's not necessarily bad. It's just you're not saved by your emotions, that you, your, your response emotionally, but saved by the one-way love of God in this. And so, um, but hopefully, prayerfully, expect to, to feel some things too. That's, that's always a good thing to come into a sermon uh, with. All right. So today we're going to look at Jesus' sentencing, part one. Look at part two next week. Uh, kind of cut it up just for time. But John 19, 1 to 11. So let's just read this in full here to begin. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. So if you weren't here last week, Pilate is the Roman governor uh, in place to kind of keep the peace uh, in this province of Judea uh, it, uh, of the day. And so it's why he's involved, because he had kind of judicial authority on some level. But um, anyway, he, that's why the Jews are bringing Jesus to him. Uh, verse 2. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the other officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. All right, so a quick comment on that last verse. Uh, don't get too hung up on the idea of greater sin. He just means to say that there are sins of ignorance and sins of willfulness, the latter being greater. Uh, kind of common sense, uh, but that's what he means. Uh, but both are still sin. That's really important to see here. Pilate's not like off the hook. He still says, you're committing a sin, it's just like a lighter sin. And so have that in mind as we go forward. You know, Jesus is here for him. He's here for the crowds, the Jews dying for his enemies. He's here for the world, whether we have great sin or um, small sin. It doesn't matter. There's no, like, curve being graded on here. The point is, uh, I've come for all, the moral and the immoral, the far from God and the close to God. Um, all those types of people need my blood uh, shed, shed for them. All right, so what I want to do today is work through this passage kind of from the end back to the front. Uh, don't always do that, but it's kind of worked out well to do that, I think, in a, a crescendoing kind of way today. It doesn't matter. I really have to do that. Um, but basically, just like I usually do, uh, but with a bit of a cruciform twist, is just to see some high-level high level observations 
on what we learn about theology here and about the gospel uh, from the sentencing scene, or at least part one of that um, in John's gospel. So the first is a little bit of a repeat from the last couple of weeks, but I'm gonna, it's said differently, of course, uh, in this section, and some of you haven't seen this, so we'll, uh, it'll be new for you anyways, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but we'll start by just saying, yet again, Jesus in full control pulls all the strings um, from, the, from the last few verses especially. And you see it especially in verse 11. The Son of God on trial, fully innocent, impeccable courage, looks Pilate straight in the eyes and says, you would have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above, meaning God gave this, God allowed this to happen. Uh, Jesus himself, as the Son of God, is pulling all the strings here as well, orchestrating with his Father's help his own uh, horrific death. And so, again, it just means the temporal power that humans, human beings have here over Jesus was given. It was granted. It was not exerted. Um, it, what, this was not an accident or a speed bump in the story, but something that God has been working towards since the very first word, uh, not just of the Gospels, but of the Bible and eternity past. It's that big a deal. Um, but again, Jesus, God's Son, is giving his powers to sinners unjustly so that he might be crucified for sinners. Um, and I think like just on a, a human level too, remember Jesus was fully, fully God and fully man. Um, on a human level, it was kind of enough for me this week to make my head spin because I was thinking like I can barely handle being told that I'm wrong when I'm not about piddly stuff like movie trivia or something. Like I just can't handle it. And, and you have Jesus here, uh, fully human, like you and me, who is being wrongly accused epically without a single voice crack, without a, an ounce of pride in his heart, without the need to defend himself, which we always do, right? He has none of that. But in love, having the long game in mind and to show us that he wanted to do this. That's where the theology is in this. He wanted to die for you. Uh, made me think of Mark 1, uh, where in response to the leper's appeal to Jesus, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus replies, I am willing. I want to. Uh, these words aren't here just for the leper. They're here for you and me. Um, and so in the Bible, we get this picture of Jesus being able and willing, powerful and compassionate. Uh, I think in uh, Luke 7, I believe it is, where he goes to the funeral of the little boy and he walks into the funeral and he weeps over the funeral, but then he goes and touches the casket and the kid comes back to life. This is just what God is like. He is, uh, his emotions are rich, they're perfect, they're beautiful. He, he cries and he raises the dead. He, he ha has compassion and power. He has willingness to save uh, and he's actually able to, it's not, it's not just like talk, you know, it's not empty words. For Jesus, he, he actually has that, that ability. Very important to see, and to see it in a personal way uh, for, for you and me. And when Pilate asks him also, where do you come from? Um, you know, it's, I love this, that Jesus doesn't answer. Uh, it, it's kind of odd. It's a little bit, you know, I guess part of that whole um, not defending himself kind of idea which is part of the string-pulling thing, which is why I have it here in this section. But I think another reason he doesn't answer is because Jesus doesn't come from anywhere. You know, on a human, human level, he does. But on a divine level, he has no beginning and no end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's God. He's the Great I Am. 
He's everywhere. He's not on a journey, nor is he growing or learning or changing like you and I do. And because of that, we can affirm that he's always been in this place, Jesus has. I don't mean that spatially, I mean that characteristically. Jesus has always been full of self-denial. He's always been full of love for you. He's always been full of willingness to fight our battles. That's like never changed. He didn't like grow into that place as if it's something that he was just kind of passing through, you know, becoming something else. He's always been that. Um, you know, and the reason, again, we know this is because he hasn't come from anywhere. Um, actually, in the uh, first chapter of the book of Job in the Old Testament, do you remember that, that whole story, if you've read that, how God asks Satan uh, the same question, where have you come from? And Satan has a response, he says, from going to and fro throughout the earth. Uh, so he has a response as a finite, created, fallen uh, angel that fell. Uh, Jesus has no response, and for a reason, because he hasn't come from anywhere. And, and again, the gospel in that is that God is not passing through town with the crucifixion. He's not on a journey. He's here. He's planting, digging his heels into the sands of the cross and the resurrection. And he will always, that will always be his posture to you, no matter, you know, no matter the state of your life or your job or your marriage or your spirituality or how much you sin or not. He'll always, always be there uh, for you, never changing or shifting like shadows. I also think his non-answer here reminds us that he is not a sin exposer, but a sin absorber. Um, so the idea that he's not shouting, exposing, highlighting, underlining, pilot sin or any of their sins kind of back at them, um, but more like a sponge, you know? Jesus isn't uh, a, an echo wall, you know, where um, the, the echo of our sin comes bouncing back as if we, it was shouted into a cave or something, you know, and it comes back at you. Um, Jesus isn't like that. The, the fact that he closes his mouth sends all the right signals, all the right messages about the kind of Savior that he is. Uh, not just his characteristics, but what he's doing right here is not simply to expose sin, but to wrap, wrap himself around with it, y yours and mine. Um, he's like, in a physics sense, he's kind of like a, he's the color black here, absorbing the light of Pilate's sin rather than the color white and reflecting his sin back upon him. Um, or, or it's like the, uh, the three wise monkeys uh, parable or image. You've seen the emojis of this or the statues. You know, the hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Anybody seen those things? Two of you. James and back. Thank you, James. All right, so um, the, the idea, that, but Jesus' version of this, uh, the, the point there is, yeah, see, no, see and hear and speak no evil, but Jesus' version of this is he does hear and see evil all the time, and it's in our brain and heart and, and on our bodies and in our lives and actions and our intentions, but he covers his mouth. He's the one monkey that covers the mouth. He doesn't speak it back to us in a vindictive way. He keeps his mouth shut like a lamb before the slaughter and carries our sins far, far away from us in the process, like the scapegoats of old. All right, the second uh, kind of high-level thing here is to look at, um, to kind of pull the curtains back a bit, uh, and to see what's starting to happen to Jesus in an accusation and exposure uh, kind of way from verses 4 to 7 especially, but I'll highlight verse 7. This is 
interestingly here where the Jewish leaders say to Pilate, uh, when Pilate's like, you know, I don't want to do this, you go do it, um, they insisted, it says, and they said, we have a law. Speaking of their Old Testament laws, they, uh, one, of, uh, one in particular, they, they say, according to that law, he must die because, excuse me, he claimed to be the son of God. All right, so in one sense, the Jews are simply referencing how the Old Testament forbids blasphemy or self-deification, you know, and by saying, Jesus saying that he is the son, it's implying that he, God is his father, right? Uh, sons always have fathers, and so... Um, this is the thing, if you remember earlier, earlier in the gospel account, this is one of the things that got the Pharisees really on his case and started in, in motion the, where we are right here. Not the only thing, but one of, the, one of the big things. So such ways of talking were outlandish and sin, uh, at best sinful and unlawful at worst uh, for the Jews. Uh, and, um, but for Jesus, in reality, this way of talking about himself was true. He's not lying. He's not sinning. Um, it was true, good, and beautiful for him to say that he is the son uh, and, and to present this way. Um, it, but, uh, in this way, he's above God's law as God's son, this particular one. But, but the twist here is that he's letting himself be condemned and crushed by this law at the same time. He's about to be crucified for it, which is really fascinating. And he's doing it for us because the statement, according to the law, he must die, is actually what the Bible says about you and me. According to the laws of the Bible that we have not kept um, on our best days, uh, we must die. That's really there, in a sense, for humanity. But Jesus became a human to be weighed down and judged by that very idea. That's kind of the irony and the twist uh, playing out right before us in, in this passage. Outside of Christ, we are under the law's curse. But Jesus came to be born under the law to redeem those who are under its weighty and kind of sin-exposing and impossible-to-keep commands. Galatians 4 is really helpful here, where Paul says, But when the, time, when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law in that same state, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Uh, Luther says about this verse, Martin Luther, uh, in his commentary on Galatians, he says, the words, Christ was born under the law, are worth all the attention we can bestow upon them. They declare that the Son of God did not only fulfill one or two easy requirements of the law, but that he endured all the tortures of the law. The law brought all its fright to bear upon Christ until he experienced anguish and terror such as no one else ever experienced. His bloody sweat, his need of angelic comfort, his tremulous prayer in the garden, his lamentation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? all bear eloquent witness to the sting of the law. He suffered to redeem those who themselves were under the law. And so the, the big idea here is that uh, when Jesus came, this is kind of partly what's going on behind the curtains. It's not always apparent. Uh, but John sort of uh, starts to highlight it through what the Pharisees and, and the chief priests are saying. Uh, that Jesus didn't die under the law to keep us under it, but to remove us from underneath it uh, is, is the idea, so that it can't crush us or accuse us anymore. Uh, the, the idea is we're set free from its reign. Uh, for Christians then, you know, in this New Testament era, there are no more if-thens. There are no more threats or conditions or to-do lists that only lead to fear, comparison games, anger, 
shame, guilt, and anxiety, to name a few. Uh, Instead, what we're given in the the New Testament is a one-way love from God that actually has the power to soften our heart and save us and bear fruit in our life. Uh, Even Jesus talked about this um, earlier in John, this idea of bearing fruit when we abide in Christ from John 17. Uh, But abiding in Jesus is the point versus abiding in the law. They're different. Um, And so this one-way love comes instead. Actually, uh, here too, Pilate's words about Jesus when he says, when he, remember he brings him back out and says, um, here is the man, when, he, uh, when he's, again, further on trial. Um, also picture this idea, in a sense, by being remarkably similar to what Nathan the prophet in the Old Testament says to David in 2 Samuel 12. And the short of that story, if you don't know, if you've forgotten, is that... Um, After David, King David, sleeps with another man's wife, Bathsheba, and then kills the husband, Uh, so adultery and murder in the same day or whatever, not his best day, Uh, um, Nathan is sent, so Nathan's a prophet, and Nathan comes and tells him a story. And the story is about a rich man who had everything, uh, who stole from a poor man his one single possession, which was this baby sheep. The poor man had one thing, and the rich man said, I have to have it. And he went and took it. And the story infuriates David, uh, and he's ready to go out as king, uh, David's king, to go out and punish this uh, rich man. But what happens then is Nathan spins the mirror around uh, on David and says, you are the man. You are the bad guy in this story. You are the antagonist, and you didn't think you were. Uh, you thought evil was out there somewhere uh, or just out there. You didn't realize it was in here. And the story is meant to, sh- to show you that, that you actually are the one who, who has done this. Um, and this is exactly what the law in the Bible does. It exposes us like a mirror in that way. It increases sin. Romans 5.20 says, The law was brought in so that sin might increase or trespass might get worse. The problem gets worse when we have a list of things that we can't do and we constantly fail. Um, and that's, that's its role in redemptive history. That's its job, is to give way, prepare the way for a different solution um, other than itself. It, it, it has, even Galatians says this, in context with the Galatians 4 that we just read from, says the era of the law is over. It was kind of like, uh, the law was kind of like an in-home tutor for a kid, uh, like a nanny. Or something, And it was there until the kid was 18, but then Christ came, the era of faith came, and now the tutor's out of a job because no one has, a tu- has like an in-home teacher or nanny anymore when they're 19 or 20, like they're out of the house or something, right? So it's kind of that metaphor. It's the same. Uh, different epochs, different testaments. They work together to tell one story, but they are, they are different. I heard, um, I forgot who first said this. A lot of people have said it, so it probably doesn't really matter. But it's kind of like um, a mirror. Well, I said mirror before, too, so it's helpful. But it's like a mirror and uh, like soap. Um, the law is like a mirror and exposing the dirt, but then we go somewhere else to wash our face, right? Like none of you have probably ever in your life picked a mirror up to clean your cheeks. Like it's not going to work, right? And it's weird and it might, it might hurt you. So... Um, that's the point, is you, the law shows the dirt, but you use something altogether different to get clean. The law, the commandments of God, can never clean you, ever, ever. Only Jesus.
can, can wash us, can truly make us clean and whole uh, before him. And so the law then doesn't just say don't do something. It says you already have done this thing. And, uh, and so going back to like our passage today in John 19, Jesus, it's, Jesus is not, it's not saying Jesus is a sinner like David. He's perfect. He's clean. He's the son of God. But it is saying that he's becoming like one here. Jesus is being treated as one. Uh, he's becoming like his ancestor David. Like David had the you are the man, Jesus gets the here is the man. Uh, it's the same thing. David and Jesus are in the same ancestral line. They're in the same theological and genealogical line for a reason. David is called the son of David. Je- sorry, Jesus is called the son of David in, in the Gospels for a reason because they're connected. Um, so here he is, Jesus is accused. He's put on trial. He's exposed. And it, it, again, it's under the same category of exposure uh, and, and accusation as the other things we've been talking about. He's placed under the law for us in order to save us, to be accused in our place. Uh, but through that, to cleanse us. Um, you know, if Jesus didn't come to remove us out from under the law, there'd be this like still ongoing place of accusation and exposure. But because he takes us out from, to save us people who are under the weight of it, to be born under it himself, to bear its curses, and then to take us out into a new testament, a new era, if that didn't happen, we'd still be in the same place. But because he did, he made a new testament that's different than the old. Um, the law can't accuse us anymore, nor can it incite sin, nor can it keep us from him. Uh, but instead, we have that one-way love from God by grace in its place. All right, third category is uh, what is Jesus wearing? We're going to look at his clothing here uh, from verses 1 to 3. A um, couple of things. Uh, he is, it um, first says that he was crowned with a crown of thorns, kind of tacked on his head, um, which is interesting. I think it's a reminder of how the Bible begins uh, with the mention of the curse in Genesis 3 and how that curse came into the world in a sort of thorny way. Like God says, the ground will be cursed and it will give forth thorns. That's why, why we sing a Christmas, Joy to the World, because, you know, we say uh, the curse has been removed, uh, is... Uh, or it mentions thorns, doesn't it, in that song? I'm blanking on that. Uh, the thorns are lifted as far as the curse is found. Am I making that up? Pretty sure it's in there. Anybody? Okay, well, whatever. Uh, but the, the point is, Jesus is wearing on his head the curse. He's coming to, again, he's, it's the sponge idea. It's, um, he's not coming to curse. He's coming to be cursed uh, in, in our place. And so um, uh, Galatians 3.13 says, Cursed are those who are hung on a tree. Um, as, as well. And, and, I, and what I like about this too, I think where this starts to preach to us is the initial like pangs and pricks and cuts and tacking on of um, this crown of thorns into Jesus' head, which would have certainly made him bleed down his cheek. Um, these initial pangs mixed with his flogging, which would have torn his back into shreds, which has already happened as well at, at, at this point, show us that we don't have to cut ourselves or harm ourselves or beat ourselves to death religiously to be saved, to become favorable to God. But uh, instead, all we're called to do is to believe uh, in the one who was for us, who was cut and harmed for us. And in a lot of life sometimes, um, as Christians or just human beings, we're, we want to self-justify something that's been done to us. We want to kind of fix with the way of life or that, that we've done 
we want to atone somehow. Um, I remember when I was in college, there, you know, there was many of us who thought about um, putting little check marks on our calendar for like good spiritual days, trying to like get in a good row of, embarrassing to say, but that's how I, you know, that's how I started it up. Uh, it, but it, we think this way, right? And we, it's like, as if that's the dictator of what it means to be a child of the king, you, you know, how you live. Um, but it crushed me. It just destroyed me. Um, the problem for me is I didn't understand the gospel. I, didn't, I, I was a Christian, but I still didn't really understand the gospel. Yes, that is possible. No, you don't know the gospel as well as you can. You just don't. Please don't think you do. That's not an insult. I don't either. It's just, it's just we're limited. We're constantly trying to self-justify and to feel better about ourselves based on what our performance and to prove we're Christians uh, by the way we live. And God never asks for it. He's here on trial being cut and tacked on with a crown of thorns and flogged to show that it's his asceticism. It's his self-denial. It's his fasting. It's his discomfort. Uh, God took that on himself, so you don't have to anymore. Um, we don't have to do that anymore. We, we receive the one who was, who was tortured in our place. Uh, he, he, this, is, this is precisely, this and many other things, uh, of course, but this, this here, precisely what makes Christianity different from all other world religions is no other religion has a God doing this for its adherents or, or people. Um, this is complete, complete 180. It's complete flip. That God would come to do this for us uh, is beyond striking. It's barely believable. Uh, it's a scandal. It's an injustice. It's unfair, but it's love. He's also wearing a purple robe. So just kind of going down the wardrobe here. Um, Mark also includes this. Uh, mentioned John as well. I don't think that Matthew and Luke do. Um, but he is clothed. In, so, so the idea is he's being mocked. He, he, the irony is he actually is the king of the universe, but they're mocking him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and sort of slapping him, spitting, him up, spitting at him on the face. Uh, and so Jesus is also bearing this kind of reproach, this kind of suffering, like an emotional suffering, uh, an insulting kind of suffering, a word-based type of suffering as well at the hands of human beings. Um, but what's interesting about the purple robe, uh, so that's royal in color, uh, being kingly, that's why this is all happening. The purple robe, though, uh, thinking biblically, theologically, going backwards in the story, and some other details here, too, I think, right in, in John 19, point us back to the story of Daniel uh, in the Old Testament. Daniel was um, a prophet figure as well, like Jesus, who was also dressed in a purple robe uh, right before he was judged, and thrown unjustly underneath the oppressive law of the king into a lion's den. So, you know, if you haven't read the Bible ever, you may have heard the story, just in re cultural reference of Daniel in the lion's den. Um, this is where this is coming from. Um, there's also a lot of similarities in the story between Darius, who's the king in Daniel's story, and Pilate. Both those guys don't want to kill their respective prophets. Do you remember that? If you've read the, the Darius story, they're like, he didn't really want to do it. And Pilate's like, I don't see any basis for an accusation against him. Like, I'm, I'm just like, you guys do it. But in both cases, their hands were tied by the law or, and or they were people pleasers. And so there's a lot of correspondence there too. Lots of similarities in this story. Um, there's a tomb-like thing as well and a stone rolled in front with Daniel. It's very Jesus, uh, Eastery uh, image there too. Um, 
those stories exist for the sake of Christ. Uh, and the purple robe is like a little hyperlink that we click on here uh, and ask, where else have we seen purple robes? And it just, it just so happens that we have a very similar kind of sentencing story uh, back in, the, in some of these dark recesses and corners of the Old Testament um, as well. Now, the difference, though, between Daniel and John 19 is that Daniel was spared. He survived the lion's den miraculously. God closed the, closed the mouths of the lions. They didn't tear him apart, and he, and he uh, comes out the next morning. Uh, but Jesus didn't. Uh, three days later after he dies, he'll be raised out of his own figurative lion's den, that, his tomb, that's true. Um, but he died, and that we might escape is the idea. So, in other words, when you do theology with stories like this and tie them to Christ, in some, it's layered. In some sense, Daniel's like Jesus. Uh, in another sense, Daniel's like us, and it depends on what part of the story you're highlighting and, and looking at, but both are true. It doesn't have to just be one. Uh, it's usually multi-layered and, and multifaceted uh, as, as it is here. All right, but then do you remember in the story what happens? Um, who read Daniel this morning? Just kidding. Uh, I won't ask, ask you to uh, raise your hand. Um, but do you remember what happens in the story after Daniel comes out and the king's like happy that he came, came out and he starts to worship the God of the Bible the, um, be, because he's kind of, it's like a conversion moment uh, there as well. Do you remember what he does right after that? He takes the guys who, um, who unjustly killed uh, Daniel and with their wives and children throw them all into the same lion's den, and they're all, like, they're all destroyed. Uh, I'll, I'll just read it. Daniel 6.24 says, The king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Okay. Super easy to swallow story here, right? With no problems whatsoever. Uh, this is tough. This is, uh, this is a, um, especially the women and children thing, right? Like when I teach on this passage, that's usually a question people have. And if you have it, it's a great question. Like that seems incredibly dark. That seems like something that I'm a little bit shocked maybe to see in the Bible. Um, it's not condoned. It's not God-backed. It's a, it's a description of a story, not prescribed, uh, in case that wasn't clear. This isn't a prescription here. Uh, this is something that happened, like a wicked king uh, in an unjust system of, of punishment and, and, uh, and, and judgment and so forth, uh, these women and kids suffered with, um, with, their, with their husbands. Um, okay, but here's why these stories exist. Going back to how I started this whole, this whole thing. Here's why these, this particular portion of the story exists. It exists for the sake of Christ. He's in these verses as well. Uh, the idea here is that the women and children are types of, say, of Christ. Like the women and children were innocently thrown to the lions on account of their husband's sin, so would Jesus come to be innocently thrown to the lions on account of ours. Um, if, you're, if you're reading the Old Testament and keeping score, uh, there's a lot of innocent people that get thrown to things um, usually women, uh, but others as well, that get thrown out to, to, the, to the lions or the wolves. Or think of um, Lot in Genesis 18. He had innocent daughters. He tried to throw out to the angry, uh, sex-crazed mob. Or think about Jephthah's daughter in the book of Judges. There's these innocent people that unjustly and wrongly and terribly get thrown out. 
um, into, into the fire. And it's just, it doesn't really explain why. Uh, it just describes, and it's terrible, and it's awful. But this is why these stories, why it's repeated, why this comes up so much. Because there's another innocent sufferer later in the story who completes that rotating, recycled theme in the Old Testament. And that is Christ. They exist for his sake. And this is, they exist for the sake of like showing us how horrific the cross is. That's really, in one sense, why they exist. You know, if we cringe at the thought of these women and children being thrown into a lion's den, as we should, then how much more should we gasp in horror at the thought of God's one and only Son being crucified among criminals? That's how we should think. You know, it's almost just like if we can't quite feel John 19, well, we have Daniel 6. Um, in fact, it gets, it gets flipped a lot too, right? Which if you've had it flipped, you're in good company. We can be more abhorred by the women and children being thrown in the lion's den than we are Jesus on the cross. And if that's how you think, if, if you're thinking, I'm more upset about the women and children than I am Jesus dying, you've got it flipped. You've got it flipped. Yes, it's both, obviously, but we, we, we're doing it wrong if we think that. We're doing biblical theology wrong. The lesser stories give way to the greater. And they're there so we can give shape to the latter things, feel the latter things, feel the weight even of how much an offense it was for God to walk into these stories himself. That's really what God has done. He told the stories, these actually happen, but then he says, one day I'm going to come and walk into these stories myself and relive them. I'm going to take on the darkest corners of what they are. I'm going to relive them so you don't have to. So the Bible's not saying uh, this could happen to you um, on account of someone else's sin or account of your sin. This is saying, I will be thrown into the lion's den uh, uh, on account, even though I'm innocent, on account of your sin, and I'll be crushed. The injustice points to the injustice, and we're the beneficiaries. Um, I, I would say that this right here is what true unadulterated Christianity is, as foreseen by Daniel 6 and signaled by Jesus's, something as simple as Jesus's purple robe. And that's heavy, right? Uh, to put it mildly. Um, but that's the point. I, I think I said this to begin, I'll say it again. Um, the Bible invites us here to not sanitize the cross. We're connecting dots between things that hopefully help with this, but don't sanitize uh, what God didn't intend to. Um, it's far and away the worst thing in the Bible is the cross. And as Christians, we say, well, wait a minute, isn't the best thing? And it is. It's simultaneously the worst and the best. It's, it's, the Bible calls it an abomination. Uh, it, the, the fact that God would suffer in this way um, is, is, is an abomination. And yet it's the climax. And yet it's the way God says the most to us about who he is. Everything else says less about himself than what this says about who he is. But we're like Daniel. This is the good news of Daniel, the good news of John 19. I mean, Pilate went home that night and had dinner with his wife, right? All the chief priests went home and tucked their kids in bed, you know, and they're the ones sinning. And yet Jesus here, the Son of God, perfectly innocent, uh, doesn't do any of that. He, he suffers. Um, 
and, and dies in our place. And so that's why we have to remember this is a love letter as well. Um, like Pilate, we're all guilty. This is what we have to come to understand. It doesn't matter if we have greater or lesser sin. Just to circle back to that for a minute. It doesn't matter. Um, but instead of Jesus here inviting us to atone for our own sins by living a more innocent life in the face of our guilt, our gaze in the story goes towards the one who is judged guilty in our place. And that's the invitation. That's why Jesus is alone here. See how alone Jesus is in this story? That's because when it comes to your salvation, he works alone. No one helps him. God is not hiring. He works alone. Praise God. So, in the, in the grand scheme then, this is what we're starting to see. And we'll continue right where we left off here next week as well and continue to see this. But I want us to see this today. This is how God speaks. He invites us to see that he's alone. He invites us to see that he's condemned, that he's made uncomfortable, and that, if anything, the call is to gaze upon him rather than uh, to pick up the slack and, and do what he's doing in our own life. Um, <clears throat> if I had to like, summarize, I would say, look upon the son, um, Christian, non-Christian, child, adult, moral, immoral, close to God, far from God. Those of you who feel, um, who have feelings about this passage and those who don't, Again, it doesn't matter. There's no partiality. To all of you, look upon the one who is stung by your sin and mine, crushed by the law in our place so we can be pulled out from underneath it, rejected by men, people like you and me, and eaten by lions uh, for you in love. You look upon him, believe in him, and, and you'll be saved. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this passage that uh, begins this uh, six-week journey uh, into uh, the, uh, the greater depths of the crucifixion and, and what it meant uh, for us in a lot of ways for you and how you demonstrated your love for us at the highest level there. Um, God, help us, please help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see, um, help us to feel, help us to believe, help us to um, listen. And all the images we get today, and there's many more, but have something to say about the nature of the gospel, what it is and what it isn't, what it is and what it contrasts with. And I, and I pray that everyone here and myself, that we'd really hear that and see that, even if it means correcting our theology, and um, that we would come to the Bible not looking for ways that it already agrees with what we're bringing, but also looking for those ways that we can be corrected. Um, these misconceived, preconceived notions or just misconceptions we have that we all have. That's just part of what it means to be human, to be Christian even. We're all growing. We're on a journey. You're not. You're not, but we are. And so, um, God, teach us, grow us, help us to understand the, the, the depths of the love of God for us in Jesus Christ all our days um, and to believe it's your work, uh, not ours. Um, in Christ we pray. Amen.